0: Hi, and welcome back to the Beyond the Peloton podcast. I'm your host, Spencer Martin. We are going to be talking about uh, the last few days of the Tour de France, specifically Primoz Roglic losing the overall on this stage 20 time trial in a heartbreaking fashion uh, due to Tadej Pogacar's really, uh, not unprecedented, but historic comeback, pulling back. Uh, basically two minutes over the course of 36 kilometers on the former runner up at the world time trial championships he had a 57 second gap going into the time trial he won by 50 i think his final gap in paris was 59 seconds so just an incredible unbelievable revert uh time reversal there and we're going to be going through the tour to see did yumbo blow it like what happened here did yumbo blow it could they have done anything differently earlier in the race uh did Ruglich have a bad day did Jar just have an amazing day uh and a few other questions like that talked about this in the uh the beyond the peloton newsletter already a little bit and there's going to be a big uh tour de france kind of decompression uh major takeaways newsletter coming out later today and if you want to sign up for that go to beyond the i'm doing a daily newsletter for uh, big races like the tour the volta the giro world championships tour flanders paris roubaix etc etc uh, that's a premium option but there's also uh, just a weekly free option and if you like this podcast you'll definitely like that newsletter uh, and if you want to support the podcast in another way, you can buy me a coffee at buymeacoffee.com slash btppod. And thank you for anyone who's already done that. But let's talk about this time trial really quick. It is just totally, totally bananas. I, I still can't believe this happened. So Roglic had a 57-second gap going into it, loses the race by 59 seconds overall. So essentially loses two minutes to Pogachar and in 36 kilometers and mind you he's not just a good time trialist he's runner up of the world championships in 2017 like very very good world-class good and and the, i think the first thing is everyone's like oh he melted down this is what he does he doesn't do well in the third week i would push back on that a, a little bit because tom dumoulin who is world time trial champion in the past. Still lost a minute and 21 seconds to Boguchar, Richie Port, who's an incredible, incredible time trialist and incredible climber. So you would think this course is perfect for him. Uh, finished the same time as Dumlon. So he also loses a minute, 21 seconds. Woot Van Aert, who is Belgian time trial champion, world-class time trialist, loses a minute and 31 seconds. So it's not just, oh, Primo's finished two minutes back and everyone else is clustered at the top. Primo's finished about... Not the not the best day ever, but just about where you would expect. If you would have told me before stage twenty that he would lose uh, twenty or no, how many forty seconds to Dumoulin, I'd say yeah, that's about right. Um, I think he'd win the stage. I think he he's not going to win the stage, but but he probably finished within thirty seconds of Pogachar and wins the tour. Not a great day, but not a terrible day. Uh, but yeah, God, I think the best he could have done, I think the best he could have hoped for is to finish right about where Tom Dumoulin was because Tom was so good on the flats. I just have, uh, like a spreadsheet with everyone's times. And if we look at the first time check, so this is the first 17 minutes of the race, uh, the first 17 minutes of the race on, it's not the, it's not flat, but it's rolling traditional time trial, uh, Parkour's. Tom is is second. So Remy Cavagna from Quick Step went first. He had a really fast ride on this first part of the course. Jumelon is 12 seconds behind him. Pogachar is five seconds behind him. So, like, this isn't even Pogachar's not that, he doesn't have like a historical dominance on flat time trials. In fact, there was just a hilly time trial at the 2019 Volta Espana. And he lost a minute and a half to Primoz Roglic on that. So historically, he, he did beat Primoz Roglic at the Slovenian Time Trial National Championships. But that was on a really steep climb with a false flat following. And he beat him by nine seconds. So roughly, you know, they're roughly going the same pace. You know, it's quite, you know, it. I would believe that Pogacar could beat Roglic climbing by nine seconds on a climb like that. It makes a lot of sense uh, on the you know, in the past, we had thought, oh, okay, but Pogachar's not nearly as good in the flat time trials since he lost 90 seconds to Roglic on the flat at the Vuelta last year. Apparently, that's changed because he just absolutely torched this. And so Tom Dumoulin, I mean, he's one of the best in the world, maybe the third or fourth best rider at flat time trialing. And, and the guys who are better than him are just pure specialists at it. They can't really do anything else. Uh, and... Primos finishes uh, 20 seconds behind him in this flat first part. So pretty good. Like, that's not bad. And Woot Van Aert is 11 seconds or 9 seconds behind Primos. And Woot Van Aert's very good at that type of course. So this is all lining up. And Richie Port is is 35 seconds behind Tom Dumoulin. That all makes a lot of sense. So if we go to the second time gap, the second time check, which is the second part of the flat, we get, uh, it's, it's now Tadej Pogacar has the fastest time on that, four fe- seconds faster than Dumoulin. So for the first part, uh, the flat part of the course, Dumoulin beats Pogacar by a total of one second, which is insane. It's insane. And then Roglic is 20 seconds behind Dumoulin on this second uh, flat part. So he's not doing great, but that's about right where you'd want him to be. Uh, then Woot van Aert is even is he's even slower than Roglic, Domino Caruso slower, Richie Porte slower. This all makes a lot of sense. Uh, we go to the first part of the climb, the first uh, I'd say two thirds of the climb, and this is when the gaps really start to pull out in Bogotro's favor. So he's six, six, six seconds faster than Richie Porte, uh, who is second. And then Woot Van in third, a half a minute behind. Uh, and then you have like Enric Rass, Mikael Landa, Perlo Bilbao. These are great climbers, like world class climbers. And they're 40 seconds behind Pogachar on this. And they haven't been riding nearly as hard as him on the flat part. Danny Martinez, Nyra Quintana, Richard Carapaz. They're all close to a minute behind him. And then you have Tom Dumoulin. So Roglic is actually, he's three seconds faster than Dumoulin, uh, who is 50 seconds slower than Pogachar on his first part of the climb. So this is like all makes, I mean, this is not a ter- that's not a terrible day for Primoz Roglic. He's same time as uh, Leonard Kamna, uh, two seconds slower than Richard Carapaz, who is a climbing specialist Grand Tour winner who specifically slow pedaled the first part of this course to climb the, go up to climb as quickly as he possibly could. And then if we look, and then Pogacar just keeps pulling out the gap. So in the last seven minutes, six minutes of the climb, he puts half a minute into Richie Port. Richie Port, who's one of the best climbers in the world, and (laughs) he was really motivated to ride fast. So a really, really fast ride from him. Uh, And then everyone else is clustered together. You know, it's like one second back to Wout Van Aert from Richie Port, Uh, one second to Enric Maas, 15 seconds to Mikel Landa, uh, and Roglic, I mean, this is probably his weakest part. He started maybe to get a little flustered. He's hearing the time gaps in his ear. He knows he's losing the race. He looked a little uncomfortable on the bike. It almost looked like he was riding someone else's bike, like the wrong sized bike. It was kind of odd actually, but he's normally looks really smooth. It was like the bad combo of high cadence, no power, which is really what you don't want, but he's not, I you know it's not crazy how slow he is. He's two seconds slower than Tom Dumoulin, two seconds slower than Simon Geschke, uh, about six seconds slower than Thibaut Pino, eight seconds slower than Richard Carapaz, uh, 15 seconds, no, 16 seconds slower than Wout Van Aert. I mean, that's not, he should be faster than Wout Van Aert. You know, in theory, he, he should be faster than Van Aert. And if we look at the total finishing climb, where I think it becomes clear that Roglic never really stood a chance is Tadej Pogacar sets the record on this by, I I said in the newsletter by two seconds over 10 seconds over Chris Froome, I guess Fabio had, Rue had actually ridden it faster at a later date at a later uh, year, but he still set the record by two seconds. And remember he's stopping during this effort. When Chris Froome and Fabio Rue were riding this, they were not stopping to change bikes and he, you know, you got to think he loses at least 10 seconds stopping and then starting again, maybe 15. So he absolutely crushes that climb. Uh, And then Richie Port is 22 seconds back. Great time, 16.32, which is only 12 seconds slower than Chris Froome's best time up it when he was actually paced up by Richie Port. And then Van Aert, who's a, you know, proven great climber, is 42 seconds back. Enric Mass, he's a great climber. He's 50 seconds back. I mean, this is crazy. And then Pelo Bilbao is over a minute back. Danny Martinez, over a minute back. Richard Carapaz, over a minute back. And Primo's is, he's about 10 seconds slower than Carapaz. He lost uh, a minute 20 on that final climb. You know, that's really where he lost the race. But in my mind... I mean, if he would have ridden the same time as Richie Port, and he does sixteen thirty-two up the final climb, I think that's that's good. I mean, that's about. I mean, Richie Port clearly had a great day. Richie Port put think how good a climber Tom Dumoulin is. Think how good he did in this race, climbing. Richie Port beat him by a minute on this climb, which shows Richie Port was absolutely flying. I think. Uh, Roglic on a good day ties Richie Port on this climb And he still loses the tour by a second Because he lost 36 seconds To uh, Pogacar On the flats leading into it I just don't think there's anything he specifically Could have done on stage 20 to save this uh, Just it, He was going way too fast Or Pogacar was going way too fast And so we then we ask okay, Did, did Jumbo Visma do something uh, Earlier in the race that they could have done differently To win this uh, we go back and, you know, every so the narrative now is, well, they should have pressed their advantage when they had it. They were strong in the first week. Well, the narrative in the first week when they were strong was, well, they're too strong. They're, they're going way too strong too early. They should chill out and wait for the third week. Everyone knows you win the tour in the third week. Now it's, well, everyone knows you take time whenever you can. It's not one in the third week. You got to press your advantage when you had it. And they were certainly strong in that First week, if we remember the first summit finished on stage four where Ruglich won and Pogachar was second, Pogachar was really the only rider in the on that stage who could who could stay with there was there should have been a gap between Pogachar and Martin who was in third uh or sorry, Ruglich and Martin who was in third but I mean Pogachar was right there, like he was the only rider in that group who could stay with him, and then say. I think maybe now everyone's saying, well, Yumbo screwed up. They shouldn't have ridden so defensively. They should have ridden more aggressively and dropped Tadej Pogacar, the strongest rider in the race, by quite a bit. Uh, but no one's saying, like, so, how, so tell me how you do that. How do you drop the strongest rider? It's not totally obvious to me. There's actually no plan that I could think of to do that. Uh, I, I've heard, oh, he could have attacked further out on these climbs. I think if he attacks further out on stage four, it doesn't matter. I mean, maybe he puts a little bit more time into everyone else, but Pogachar's not. He wasn't going to drop him. He was way too strong. Uh, and they did take time. They took time. They took a minute and a half on him on stage seven. Or Let me check that. A minute, uh, a little bit under a minute and a half. So a minute and 21 seconds on stage seven. You know, to me, that was, you know, that was the strong team pressing, you know, flexing their muscles and catching them out. He Pogacar, I guess, flatted and then couldn't catch on in the crosswinds. If he has a stronger team, you know, maybe, you know, he at least limit those losses and maybe can even catch on. But to me, it's like you take a minute and a half out of this kid in the first week. That's a great first week. I don't think they could have asked for anything more, and I don't think they were going to put time into him. Uh, the, so it's, I, I've isolated you know, There's one mistake in my mind So stage 8 Which is first stage in the Pyrenees Following that stage 7 cross Wednesday Where Roglic Lost quite a bit of time uh, They're going up the final climb The Kolda Parasword And Pogacar attacks uh, Roglic goes with them Quintana follows That group then is pulled back By like a Richard Carapaz led peloton and then Pogacar counterattacks. It's about 10 minutes before the top. And he gets away. And he uh, stays away through the descent and finishes, I believe it's 40 seconds in front of the GC group. That is where, you know, he didn't win the tour by 40 seconds. He won it by 59 seconds. But to me, that was the big screw-up for Yumbo. Not, uh, not chasing it down. And, but when I say Yumbo... I went back and watched this stage. Roglic was the only Yumbo rider left. So Roglic would have had to personally go with him on that stage. Uh, it looks, when, you, when you're watching it, it, looks like Roglic lets him go because he's down on time and he figures, well, everyone else needs to chase him before I chase him. So I'm just going to sit here and make everyone else pull this back. That's what it looked like. I, but I went back and I looked at the power files. It's not totally what the story was. So... On the Parasword, which is about a 25, Roglic or Pogachar set the all time record on this climb, by the way. So he's flying up this. Uh, it's about 25 minutes. He averaged 428 watts, which I would think Pogachar is about 63 kilos. So let's just do that math. Well, maybe he's closer to, I bet he's 62, 62 or 61 kilos. Uh, let's say 62. That's 6.9 watts per kilo on the final climb averaged. That is really high. That's like Alberto Contador, Lance Armstrong, peak of their powers, peak of their doping. Uh, it's not totally clear to me that, that that's followed. And I'll put uh, these specific files in the newsletter coming out later today. But so the, the file for the whole climb is it is so herky jerky for the first 15 minutes. It's like, it's, it's really, actually, really interesting to look at. And then there's a spike. Where he's attacks and then it's just perfectly straight line after that. And he attacked at 860 watts. He probably held that. I think his average for the attack was like 10 seconds at about 600 watts. Uh, that might not sound like a ton, but I think he was he averaged 412 watts for the 15 minutes before that attack. <laughs> and so he's going from. I mean, that is that is a high pace. That's about that's probably for him. That's like six point six watts for, for kilo. I mean, it just for reference for anyone, like if we tried to get on our bikes right now and ride six watts per kilo for a sustained period, we would it would you would probably puke after a few minutes. It is so hard, and they're they're going well above six watts per kilo. Um, so he does this attack, and then he actually ramps it up. So for the first part of the climb, he averaged four hundred twelve watts in the group so after the attack after the searing attack he averages 414 watts for the last 10 minutes and i'm getting these numbers so that he was posting them to strava uh he stops after this stage probably because people were like whoa that's way too high i'm uncomfortable with that so i mean i have it you know going from my 62 kilo this is a little a bit of an estimation he's listed at about 63 64 kilos but he, I'm just assuming he lost a little bit of weight during the tour and he he just visibly looked very skinny. Uh, he's at like 7.2, 7.1 Watts per kilo for the last 10 minutes. I mean, 444 Watts at, at that small, at that light of weight for the last 10 minutes, the climb that's already been high is just, it's incredible. It's so to me, I, it's not, Completely obvious that Roglic could have followed that. That's asking a lot, you know. It kind of looked like he was just mincing about in the group back there, just like oh, playing a conservative. Oh, Roglic always, and I, and I criticize him a little bit for this too, where it's like I think he gets a little too conservative, and he's always following. He'll always kind of follow, and he's waiting for some time in the future to attack. This this really bit him in the butt at the 2018 Giro or no 2019 Giro d'Italia. Where he was just focused on Nibali and he let Carapaz get these gaps and he lost the race because of it. But I don't think that's what happened here. I mean, 444 watts. Maybe he could have gone. He's a very strong bike rider, but that is asking a lot, a lot. So, you know, I've pinpointed that as you know that is the moment really where he could have lit, he could have closed quite a bit. Of, you know, if he's starting that that final time trial with what would that be that would be a minute and 41 seconds uh gap over pogachar yeah he might win that you know because even if he's on a similar day you know in pogachar's mind that's a little bit more overwhelming to pull that pull that much time back maybe he goes out too hard he's slightly slower ruglich is panicking slightly less when he's hearing the time gaps and maybe he can you know make up for that 20 second delta You know, maybe that's all speculation. We don't, I don't know any of that. That's just speculation. But in my mind, that's really all he could have done. Um, as I even went back to the uh, if you remember on stage 13 up to Puy Marie, and this that's the first time we saw uh, Roglic really kind of come out and try it. Looked like he was trying to drop Pogachar a little bit. Uh, Bernal, Bernal gets in trouble, he's dropped a little bit, and Roglic, you know, let's you know, kind of like. Presses his uh, foot on the, lets his foot off the gas, presses the accelerator. Uh, Pokachar has stopped posting uh, power numbers by this point, but he is posting rides to Strava and they, they have an estimator on there. It will take your, whatever your power, your weight is. And it's actually a, it's a pretty accurate estimator. I used it a lot before I had a power meter. And then after I got a power meter, I can go back and check historically how accurate this estimator is. It's actually it's quite accurate, more than you would think. And I had those guys at, uh, I had Pokachar at 411 watts average for roughly the 15 minute final climb, which was very steep and very hard. And he uh, was just slightly above that average after when Roglic was attacking him. Uh, so let's just assume that's right and that Roglic. Is yeah maybe Pogachar, he's just not on quite as good a day on that day. That was the the only time in the tour where he really looked well. No, there was three times where he looked kind of in trouble. This is the first one, but he doesn't get dropped. I mean Roglic is really he's going all out and he can't drop him on this, especially on this steep 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 finish. He can't drop him. That tells us that I don't think attacking any further out would have dropped pogachar I, I and. We can't just ask Roglic, hey man, just detect further out on a really hard climb. Not totally how that works. Uh, and then, so the next kind of odd thing is, and so I had him, uh, just my calculations had him at about 420 watts on uh, Roglic's wheel at the end of Puy Marie. So let's just say that Roglic, you know, he can do, and let's assume they weigh roughly the same. Roglic is maybe a little bit heavier even. If Roglic's all out is around 420, 430 watts, 6.8 watts per kilo, then you know maybe he couldn't have followed on stage eight. You know, that's and and think this is these are for like these are 25 to 15 minute efforts at about 6.8 watts per kilo. That's gonna come in handy here in a little bit. Uh, just remember that number and remember that those short durations. So he uh and then so on stage 17 up Col de Lawz this is steep this is the hardest climb of the Tour de France. Uh Roglič finally dropped uh, Boguchar and the attack came you know it wasn't that far out it was maybe kilometer and a half out but it's like maybe for the last 10 minutes it took them forever to get up the last K. It was about 10 minutes 8 minutes before the finish. And he dis and he's riding hard. I mean, I'll, I can post some little videos in the in the newsletter, but Roglic has given it everything he's got and he's he distanced uh, Pokachar by 15 seconds. And you know to, to me if that's what he got on that stage, that's as much as he was gonna get. He was not gonna distance Pokachar by more than that. Uh, and then the next day on stage eight, no, so then on stage, uh, yeah, yeah, the next day on stage 18. Uh, Pogacar attacks up the final climb. It's, it finishes on the descent with the last climb, which is actually a tough climb, average of 11%. So it's hard. And he just he doesn't get anywhere. He can't get a Roglic. Roglic pushes the, you know, kind of uh, really pushes it on the gravel over the top. Pogacar looked in trouble for a little bit, but he still doesn't drop him. And he dropped Seb Kuz. So we know that he was, he was going really hard. Uh, it's like, to me, I mean... I, I still don't quite understand how Charga could, could go from being uh, that bad on 17 and 18. I say bad in quotations, not bad. But, you know, in that where he was on stages 17 and 18 to being so strong on stage 20, it's a little bit weird to me. You know, It's like I, I actually have some. Yeah, I wrote a little bit about this, uh, some potential doping implications in the newsletter, the final day, the stage 21 newsletter. So if you want to read that that's in there. I don't necessarily need to go into that again on this podcast, but you know, that's a little bit weird to me. It's also weird to me. He wrote the, wrote the final time trial without a power meter when he's been riding the whole race with a power meter. Um, but let's get to that final time trial really quick. So we already went over the times that I think Roglic was, you know, he had a, uh, not terrible, but not great day. Uh, I've seen estimations that just some, there's actually some pretty Accurate number crunchers out there who can get, uh, they can estimate riders' watts per kilos on these climbs fairly well. Uh, this is, I won't try to say his name, but I can maybe we'll link to him in the. He's a Romanian, just like super cycling fan, super knowledgeable about the sport. But he uh, records all these times on these climbs and will do these pretty accurate uh, power to weight calculations. He had Pogachar at 6.9 watts per kilo for the climb up La Planche de la Belleville, Les Planches de la Belleville. So you got to remember, so that sounds similar, right, to what I've been talking about so far. And it's a 15 minute effort, but you have to remember. So they hit that climb 40 minutes into an all out effort, which they're not doing uh, on these other stages. They're, they're tucked in the wheel of their team. They're going hard, but they're not going threshold hard, which threshold is as hard as you can ride for an hour. Uh, so when they're hitting these climbs, they're much fresher than they are than the time trial. Uh, the the, the, cl- the times on these time trials should be slower than they would be in a mass start race because a you're not drafting and b you're hitting they they should be hitting the climb going all out, having gone all out for 40 minutes. Uh, he also estimated Roglic at six watts per kilo on the climb, which sounds low, right? It's lower than everything I've been saying he's been doing. But to me, that tracks because he was probably doing six watts per kilo before the climb. You know, if you're pacing that effort, you want your power on the flats to be, you don't really want your power to change when you hit the climb. Uh, you know, like Bradley Wiggins, I think, you know, I would bet when Bradley Wiggins won the tour in 2012 that his power was about, I actually read his book, so his autobiography, uh, let me sum it up. for you. The most interesting part was he just put power numbers from his Tour de France rides in there. I think he averaged about 450 watts on the final time trial on that tour he weighed about he must have been 73 kilos so that's about 6.1 watts per kilo and that was an amazing ride so Roglic isn't much below that at six watts per kilo Um, and I would bet if I had to guess that he did six close to six watts per kilo going into the climb Uh so just to that, Pokachar is putting out an entire watt per kilo higher. That tells me that it just it wasn't going to happen for him. He just he the only way he could have saved it is if he didn't give up that time on stage eight. And you know, it maybe uh, it changed Pokachar's strategy a little bit as far as coming going out a little bit harder, trying to get a little bit more aggressive about taking that time back, and gave him a little bit more confidence. You know, because when we went through those time cuts. It was the last six minutes of the climb where he was the weakest, which, you know, that could be physical. It was the end of a long, hard three-week race, or it could have been mental. He's, he, he, he knew he had lost the race by then, so he maybe wasn't giving it everything he could have been. So in summation, I think Yumbo Vismo rode a really good race. Uh, it's sad that this tour will be remembered as like one they blew versus one that they won or one that they dominated. They wrote it exactly the way Team Sky wrote it. When everyone said that was genius, now they just lost to a stronger rider, and people are saying, oh, they're idiots. What were they doing? That, that, to me, their strategy was was very good. Um, Dumoulin and Woot Van Aert and Sepp did a lot of a lot of really important work. Uh, Pogacar won this thing with a really weak team, maybe one of the weakest teams I ever remember. Actually, if we remember back to stage one, uh, they, they had the jersey on the first stage and the last day, and that's it. With Kristoff won the first stage and got the yellow jersey. Uh, Pogachar only had the jersey for the final day. I think that's only been done a few times uh, throughout history. Uh, and why this is important, actually, it's kind of interesting to think about that time loss on stage seven is helping them. If Pokachar doesn't lose that time, uh, he might have the yellow jersey going into the first uh, rest day that team was not strong enough to defend the jersey. It was exactly strong enough to do what they did, which is take it on the final day and defend it zero days. They would have gotten I think shredded uh if they were trying to defend that through the sat second week. That could have gotten ugly for them. Uh and you know, I think they they you know, if we remember how hard these stages started, they would have really struggled to control that. Moves could have gotten away a long way from the line. Riders could have pulled out big time gaps, uh, and Pogochar could have gotten called out, called out. So, you know, I'm not a huge uh, fan of just like, Oh, strong. team. you can win a tour with strong team, a strong team, because as we saw, you know, this could have happened to any, any of those sky years that they won. a stronger rider can just sit on your wheel on these climbs and use all your teammates for themselves and then attack or wait and win it in the time trial. You know, you, the stronger rider is at the advantage here. Let's like make no mistake that the team is really helping on these climbs. To me, the team helps on the other times. You know, on the flats, uh, on the start, beginning of the stages when things are chaotic. That's you know, it's times actually when frankly people don't watch watch these races at those times. So they don't totally understand how important these teams are. When we're when we're watching on the climbs, the teams are mildly important at that point. Dumoulin set the tempo and shut down a few attacks. That helped. But it's not completely necessary. As we saw, like Tadej Pogacar was strong on those climbs and he could handle himself. Uh, it's the other times where the team is important. So also don't walk away from this tour thinking, hey, why are these teams spending all this, time, spending all this money on, on riders when they don't need to? They could just get the best guy in the world and throw him out there unattached. That is a little bit of a fluke where if he comes back to this race, A, people are going to know he's a favorite. I mean, he's going to come back. I Don't Don't say if. He will come back. People are going to know he's a favorite, so he's not going to, able to race quite as stealthily. And if he ever takes the jersey before the final day, it's he's going to need a stronger team to defend that. Uh, yeah, so th- that's my thoughts on team strength. I'm not a huge component of you need to be the strongest team to win. I did hear today on the cycling podcast, which I love, not criticizing them, but I do think this is incorrect where they said – A strong team can beat the strongest rider. I don't know if I believe that. Like, there wasn't much Yumbo could have done to beat Pokachar. If maybe if Dumoulin wouldn't have pulled himself out of the overall, he did finish seventh overall, by the way, which is pretty impressive for like, quote unquote, pulling himself out of the overall. I don't totally see how that changes anything. If he's fourth overall, Roglic is first, Dumoulin attacks, Pokachar is going to go with him. I mean, there's no attack on the climb they could have done that would have put Pogachar in trouble. He was just stronger. I mean, maybe they could have, you'd have to get real creative. You'd have to attack a long ways out, you know, four or five climbs from the finish to really put someone in the mix. Actually, this is what uh, Fabio Aru and his Astana teammate, they really put Dumoulin in the mix at the final tough stage of the Volta. Uh, this was a few years ago and Dumoulin actually lost the race. But you know, I don't think Dumoulin was not as strong as Pogachar is now back then uh but that's what they would have had to done they would have done some long range you know really you know some really like a suicide attack and you wouldn't do that when you're a minute in the lead it's just it's to me it's a lot of like monday morning quarterbacking just saying oh they wrote it stupid they should have written it differently i think the only mistake they made was uh giving up that the the time on stage eight man you know maybe they couldn't going to pull that back. I've also seen some criticism of, oh, well, these other riders should have attacked. You know, why didn't they attack in the mountains? Just attack. You know, people don't realize how fast they're riding these climbs. We had uh, Tadej Pocachar set climbing records on the Col de Paris Horde, the Col de la Marie-Blanque, uh, Passe des uh Grand Colombier, and Planche de, Be- Planche de la Belfield. I mean, that is, these are the fastest times of all time. Up these mountains in a sport that is that the history is rife with doping. And just to put this in perspective, I went back and watched the 2012 uh, finish up the planche the first time they ever did it. Uh, It was like a really easy day and they finished up this climb and it was nuclear fast. You go back and watch that video and it looks like Sky is going 40 miles an hour up this climb and they are just shredding the field. Guys are getting spit out the back left and right. Richie Port setting pace. You're like, man, Richie Port was good back then. And Chris Froome wins, and it looks like he's going faster than anyone could ever climb this climb. And to put it into perspective, Richie Port is climbing faster now than he was back then. We think that he's lost something since he left Sky. He's actually better than he was at Sky. Chris Froome would have gotten dropped on that same climb that he dominated on in 2012. If Chris Room was in this race, this is going to sound controversial, but it's not. It's just a fact. Chris Room at his peak would have been struggling to stay in these groups going up these climbs. That's how fast this tour was. That's how fast these climbs were. So when people say, oh, these guys should be climbing, should be attacking, why aren't they attacking? They're letting chances go. It's, it's a little bit of, pardon my French, but, but bullshit. <laughs> no one can attack off that. It's way too fast. Chris Froome couldn't attack. Chris Froome would have given getting dropped on some of these climbs. And, you know, to think Pogachar beat his time up La Planche by 10 seconds and he got off his bike in the middle of the effort. I mean, that should really put into perspective how fast this was. Richie Port, who was in the, the end of a time trial, finishes just 10, 11, or 12 seconds back from Froome in 2012. Without that bike change and without the, the time trial effort, Richie Port now would be dropping Richie Port and Chris Froome in the past, you know? So it's a little bit mind bending to think quite how fast these climbs were and how hard these riders are going. And it's, so I don't, yeah, I don't, I really don't like to hear, oh, they just played it too conservatively. They weren't attacking. They couldn't attack. No one, no one could attack. I mean, Lopez is a high altitude specialist Who's tiny? I think he's like 5'4, 120 pounds. And he got away from Roglic and Pogachar a little bit on the highest and steepest climb of the tour. (laughs) You know, it's like in Richie Port, um, Richie Port was right there the whole time. You know, it's if Richie Port couldn't attack, you know, none of these other guys could attack. So uh, I don't want to hear it. Uh, actually Richie Port. Yeah. Richie Port and Lopez is in Lopez. We, people were acting like he had that third place locked up. Port just roasted him in that time trial. Oh my Lord. I think he lost like six minutes. It was really bad. And this should actually serve as a lesson to us. When this route was released, everyone was saying, Oh, it's a climbers tour. It's a climbers tour. There's only one time trial and it's up a hill and it's short. Well, you know, the time, the guys who are good at time trials. yep put minutes minutes into these like quote unquote climbing specialists like Landa uh th- I mean the weird thing about these classifications is Landa Lopez uh Richard Carapaz I mean they're all they're not as good at climbing as the quote unquote time trialists like Roglic Pogachar I mean Pogachar I guess is good at everything and Dumoulin. I mean they those guys were actually better climbers throughout the race uh but if we just look at, let's look at the results of stage 20 really quick, just to put into perspective how much time one of these uh, non-time trialing GC riders would need. Like Landa lost, Landa lost three and a half minutes to the winner and then essentially, you know, a minute and a half to Roglic, who quote, quote, had a bad day. So Landa would have needed You know, minimum 90 seconds, minimum 90 seconds to win this tour going into that final TT. Enric Moss, you know, he finishes in fifth. Pretty good time trialist. You know, he's he's serviceable. He finishes, you know, 50 seconds behind Roglic and, you know, a minute, 20 seconds behind Dumoulin. (laughs) These guys would need a lot of time. I mean, let's look at Pino just to, to. before we ever say, think about this, before you ever say Thibaut Pino can win at Tour de France, he finished four minutes back on Bogachar. So mm-hmm. he would have needed a huge gap. Uh, and then actually this, this is actually a good segue, Naira Quintana, uh, really disappointing tour, finished over an hour back from Bogachar. He looked very strong in the first week. He actually had a decent second week, crumbled in the third week, I think a, a little interesting tidbit that came out today was his Tour de France room was raided by the police following stage 17. If you remember, that was the hardest day of the race, up Cote de la Loz. And is the police, during COVID, raided his hotel room. To me, that, that tells me one thing, that they had really strong intel. They would not uh, do an in-person raid during COVID lightly. They're only doing that if their intel is incredibly good that there's doping products in those rooms, illegal doping products in that room. Uh, And if we remember, he was actually writing quite poorly by then. I think they did the raid. I think they maybe wanted to do it earlier. It maybe got caught up with some bureaucracy. And I think, uh, I I mean, I I love Quintana, but I mean, let's let's like look at the facts here. It kind of looked like Quintana was quote-unquote missing something in the final week. I think he got rid of that something you know, a couple of days before the authorities came knocking. Uh, in that, you know, to me, that it's just like this is troubling news coming out. You know, we're finding out a week later that his hotel room was raided. Why didn't we find out at the time? Like, what was that delay about? Quintana was not nearly the best climber or rider at this race uh, that we saw a lot of fantastic performances at. And he's getting uh, rated for doping. Uh, that's, it's, uh, I don't like that at all. <laughs> no, at all uh and it is it, to me this feels a little bit like 2006 where we saw this fantastic performance where Floyd Landis came back from 8 minutes down to win and then a few days later we found out how he did that um i'm not going to i you know i'm not saying Pokachar is going to get caught it's just i don't like the slow trickle of doping news uh it, it, you know after the fact is done and actually i want to say Pokachar, you know Pokachar has people working on that ua team that are you know, quite, I think, standup guys like Alan Piper, the director is, he's worked on some teams that maybe have questions of doping, but none of those teams he's worked on except maybe the early lotto years were really known as like doping powerhouses. They were all, he worked at the late stage uh, T-Mobile after Bob Stapleton took over and cleaned up that program. And then BMC, where actually a lot of great writers went and were quite bad, which would tell me You know, they were paying guys a lot of money. Maybe they just got the check and like, yeah, I'm just going to hang out and go to the beach. I don't need to ride hard anymore. Eh, But they're also maybe doing things the right way. And uh, Steve Tulford, rest in peace. uh, Great, great, great Kansas cyclist. uh, Big, clean racing advocate. His wife was a swan reward on that BMC team. So I cannot imagine that there was any type of systematic doping on that team. He would have probably called his wife out for that so uh piper is is poker charge director i think very highly of him uh i don't necessarily trust i don't necessarily trust anyone in this sport but pretty good guy but they also have a south african team doctor who is like a huge anti-doping advocate so to me those are like two important things to note before i note the next thing their team manager mara gianetti uh former pro cyclist who literally almost died on the bike because he uh Got a bad blood bag or bad uh, batch of EPO. He had to go to the ICU uh, after riding in a race. Uh, and he was the manager of the Sonia Duval, Sonia Duval team. And if you are a fan of cycling for the past fifteen years, you know this team because they would they would be flying. They were. This was like when doping was somewhat tolerated, and they would get kicked out of the tour for doping because ASO would be like, "Come on, this is ridiculous. You guys are going up climbs faster than the motorcycles." And they were a literal joke, and that they were a joke. Uh, some of the biggest dopers of all time. And if you think, oh, it, so to me, it was incredibly uncomfortable to see him celebrating with Pogachar. He's now his team manager after the stage. I hated seeing it. Uh, and if you think, well, maybe he's reformed. Well, his former teammate uh, and co worker, Stefan Hule, said of uh, Giannetti. Doping is so ingrained in certain managers like Gianetti, that they can't conceive of cycling any other way. That is not a great thing to hear about the general manager of the Tour de France, of the team of the Tour de France winner who just won the tour in a fantastically strong fashion. I don't like that at all. Uh, I'm not going to, you know, I don't want to cast aspersions on Pogachar. I don't really know anything about him. Other than he's from Slovenia, which is a beautiful country. Highly recommend visiting beautiful Alps, uh, beautiful. One of the, The best European capitals, I'd say. Very fun place. Hang out in Ljubljana more. That's my advice to everyone listening to this podcast. Uh, But, yeah, I don't know anything about them. I know that Slovenia did. uh, There were a few really important uh, doping power players in this Operation Alderlass, which is going on currently. Uh, That's not great to hear either. But, um, I, don't, I don't want to just say Pogachar's doping because he's from a weird country that we don't know anything about and he rides fast. That wouldn't be fair. But uh, the team manager uh, bit is, is, is really odd. I don't like that at all. And this Quintana raid is really, really troubling. I mean, Quintana was, was strong early in the race. He was by no means ripping that race apart. He was I mean, as I just said earlier in this podcast, he followed the first move with Bogachar and Roglich and then got dropped. Or did not drop, but he just couldn't hang. Uh, yeah, I don't like it at all. I, I don't. It doesn't make me feel good. I actually haven't. F- I felt a little weird after that stage twenty time trial. It was. I I didn't by no means thought this was a clean race up until then. I, I will probably never think pro cycling is clean, but I thought it was quite fair. Uh, no one seemed to be that. Even though Pogochar was setting records up these climbs, no one to seem to be that much better, that much absurdly better than anyone else. And then after stage 20, I just, I, I, there was a pit in my, I felt the same way after the 2018 Giro, just like, wow, what I saw was incredible, but I feel really uncomfortable with it. And that's the way I feel now. Uh, I thought it was, you know, in the GC race was kind of boring. People were saying, oh, it's boring, you know, but boring is, is not bad. Like, boring is good. Boring is the way it should be. These guys are all super fit. They've all known this race is coming. They should, they should be about at the same level they're all the best writers anyone could find in the world so to me a boring g c battle is a good gc is good as far as clean or at least fair uh you know that was an it was an incredibly it was incredibly exciting watching pogachar win uh I feel a little bit uncomfortable with it though in retrospect but uh also a couple of interesting notes is we thought this was like a climber of people I didn't think this I wrote a piece right after they released the the uh, route that this would be won in the time trial, and it was won in the time trial, but it was a climb-heavy race with low low amount of time trial kilometers, uh, but if we look at like the time lost in game between Roglic and Pogachar, Roglic gained a minute and 29 seconds on the flats, uh, Pog- Pogachar gained 32 seconds in the mountains, and minute 56 seconds in the TT so the mountains are actually the third of the three parkour types as far as time gained or lost which is really interesting and something to keep in mind when these routes are released and with the upcoming Giro d'Italia with three time trials people are saying oh it's a it's gonna be a time trial race it doesn't always play out like that sometimes you get these inverse effects of the more time trial kilometers there are the more attacking there is in the mountains because Guys who want to great at the time trials know they got to take time. And when there's a few amount of time trial kilometers, people are really conservative in the mountains. And they think, hey, you know, I just need a few seconds and I can win this thing. So you get these these weird inverse effects. You know, it's like keep this in mind when uh, whenever you're looking at profiles for uh, Grand Tours. So there's a Beyond the Peloton podcast listener and premium newsletter subscriber uh and friend and former teammate of mine uh kevin who lives in basel switzerland and he actually rode over to la planche de la belleville for the final time trial which talk about a great day on the bike right like a long beautiful ride through the mountainous mountainous regions of switzerland and france and then you ride back and you know you get to go to the tour without dealing with the traffic and the crowds uh that sounds so fun Recorded some uh like before the race during the race and then a little reflection when he got home uh, back in Switzerland. And I, th- I think it's really interesting and it will give us some insight into what it's actually like to be at the race. So that's coming up right now.
1: Here at the Planche de Belleville. Uh, helicopter above me. And yeah, there's a lot of people here. Great weather for a bike race. Not too hot, no sun. Actually rained a bit earlier, so watch out for that. Maybe. Uh, I may get some sprinkles, but it looks looks like a great day for a bike race Last uh, last real day competitive day of the tour. So let's see what happens So Watching these riders come up this ramp. It's Really really impressive how slow they are going. I think Almost all the riders uh, Are just dead tired and it's been a hard tour They are just trying to finish and this ramp is this climb is brutal and it's unforgiving, and the last uh, 25% ramp at the finish is really brutal. So. just got uh, back from the stage, um, 90k from from here, and it's yeah, um, it's a trip. Riding out to the Vosges, you're kind of in this rolling. I'm, com- I'm coming from the from the Swiss uh, German French border. Uh, Rhine River and just this rolling um, kind of flat farm uh, wine country Alsace, and then all of a sudden you kind of approach these like hills out of nowhere that seem small until you get to them and they're I mean they're legit they're not Alps but they're big and um, that climb today I mean it's it's deceptive it's the average gradient deceives you because you have these rests. But then you have these brutal ramps, and um, the top, the, the the final within the final three hundred meters is it was just so brutal. Looking at that, seeing these riders, I mean the the expressions on their faces going up it. Um, I came down the side of it on my road bike, um, and um, I was scared of endoing because it, of how steep it was. It is uncomfortably steep, and those riders you can't you can't really get that perspective on the on the TV. But, um, yeah, really impressive stage today. Um, really exciting. And um, yeah, I was also just reminded going out there, as you approach this the tour, like you realize how big of an event it is. I mean, way more than we what we see on the TV. It's like you're thirty kilometers away, and there's indications for cars. there's I mean, you know the the, the local governments have been preparing for this for weeks months um all the campings are full um you know this is a it, it's like to, to compare it to an for an american it's like a super bowl um almost the level of a super bowl or something like that you know 21 days uh for these towns and so that's i mean to give a level of importance of this event that's moving around france and it's it's i mean in a time of covid even with uh, way fewer spectators, it was—it's amazing to see how kind of important it is to the economy. And obviously, as viewers, we love to see it. But it's also—I'm um, glad that it was able to take place, at least on some level. And yeah, really, really cool stage. The Planche de Bellefille, the Vosges, is uh, very beautiful. And I—I I hope the tour returns uh, many, many years. It's—it's it's always a fun, uh, fun stage to watch.
0: Thanks, Kevin, for recording that. That was really interesting to hear. And I think the, one of the most notable things, there was two really notable things there, is just how human these riders look in person. He noted how hard the tour was, and you could see it on their faces. You really, really don't get that through TV. And also just how steep it was. Kevin's an extremely, extremely skilled rider, a world-class track cyclist, and just really, really, really skilled uh, mountain and road rider. And if he's saying it was so steep on the descent that he was worrying about indoing, that gives you a perspective into just how steep that was. Really, really interesting stuff to hear. Um, <laughs> kind of makes me, it must be really steep. I've never seen Kevin hesitant to ride down anything. So that uh, we can only, and, and to think Tom Dumoulin was riding up that on his time trial bike in the aero position is it's really mind-blowing. Uh, Just like we should remember that when we're watching these races and criticizing people and saying why aren't they stronger? They should be better. Uh, That just how hard this is. Uh, Well, that's it for this week. I we I threw a lot of numbers at you. I hope that it didn't overwhelm. I wanted to make it as uh, as understandable as possible, but just wanted to give people perspective on uh, just how fantastic, uh, fantastically strong Boguchar's performance was. And, you know, how, how fast Roglic was going, even though it looked like he was struggling. You know, he actually had a pretty good race. Uh, and just, it's not, it, you know, when people are saying, oh, Yumbo screwed this up, just remember that it, the answer's not all, always that obvious how, how they would have done anything differently. Uh, so, yeah, if you like the show, please rate it five stars on Apple Podcasts and share it with someone. And also, most importantly, remember to register to vote and vote in the upcoming election in the U.S. And if you don't live in the U.S., Don't vote illegally. That would be bad. But just know that we are trying to vote. All right. Well, uh, I will. We have world championships next week, which is friggin' ridiculous. These races are. (laughs) There's so many of them uh, coming so fast. So we'll have a world championship preview pod come up later this week. And then we'll have a world championship recap pod after that. So yeah have a great week i hope everyone had a great tour it was actually really cool to do the daily newsletter i thank you for everyone who read those a lot of people reached out saying they found them helpful so that is great to hear and i will keep it up all right bye and talk to everyone later